In this episode of the Business of E-Commerce, I talk with Erica Lou Williams about the journey from being a techie to an e-commerce food entrepreneur. This is the Business of E-Commerce, episode 43. Welcome to the Business of E-Commerce, the show that helps e-commerce retailers start, launch, and grow the e-commerce business. I'm your host, Charles Pulaski, and I'm here today with Erica Lou Williams. Erica is the founder of Great Nola, an e-commerce retailer that supplies tech companies like Google, Dropbox, and Twitter with healthy granola. I thought she had a very interesting background in B2B sales, so I wanted to talk more about how she started and is now growing her business. So hey, Erica, how are you doing today? Good. How are you guys? Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming on the show. It's uh, great talking with you, and I read through your bio. It's super interesting. So I'll probably let you actually describe a little bit about your background and how you got started with Great Nola. So. Sure. Yeah, would love to share. So um, a little bit about me. I graduated Stanford in 2008. Um, I was a former um, Stanford swimmer. I qualified for two Olympic trials. So I think the, you know, active and, fi- you know, active living and fitness has always been a big part of my DNA. Um, but, you know, healthy eating and, and, food was something that I was very passionate about, but I didn't really quite learn how to do it until, um, my husband and I started adopting a post Super Bowl month long cleanse. Okay. So, um, just like for career background at the time. And after I graduated college in 2008, I started a career, um, in tech in Silicon Valley. So I'm in the Bay area of California where that tech boom happened. Um, and so I was working a full-time tech job had this itch to start something entrepreneurial, didn't really know what I wanted to um, do or solve. But I was making this homemade granola, and that was just purely out of um, a need as far as wanting to find a healthy yet delicious snack during this cleanse that my husband and I would do. And um, we really found ourselves with not you know, a lot of great options. And so one day I literally was watching Food Network and Alton Brown, celebrity chef, was making granola. But as you know, a lot of granolas on the market are really um, unhealthy. So they're full of sugar, they're full of genetically modified oils. So I just decided to make sort of a clean version of it um, using better ingredients like organic coconut oil and superfoods. And this ended up being a staple in our household, not just during this cleanse, but all year round. Um, And so one day, maybe six months later, after I started getting that entrepreneurial entrepreneurial itch, I decided, you know, what if this could be my idea? Um, I leaned into it, decided to just launch at a local farmer's market back in 2013. And that's how I basically got started. So in the beginning, it was purely just selling at the farmer's market, me baking my granola after I came home from work, packaging it on the weekends and selling on Saturdays. Um, However, I got my first big break shortly after I launched the business when one of my friends who worked at Google offered to connect me to their food team. And so I don't know if you guys know, but Google pioneered, you know, this, this requirement now where, you know, these Bay area, Silicon Valley tech companies basically have to offer like the best food and beverages and amazing benefits to just retain and attract talent. Um, and I got the opportunity to sample my granola at this, um, at Google and I ended up getting voted into all of their micro kitchens. So I literally went from having to, you know, home bake 20 pounds a week for the weekly farmer's market to suddenly Google placed, you know, an order for 1500 pounds of great NOLA that they wanted every single month. So I had to figure out how to scale my production pretty quickly. Um, But that was definitely a big opportunity for me, not just winning Google's business, but 
creating a different channel of going to market with my, with my product rather than going into just traditional grocery stores that most food brands do. I, I've been able to build out this channel of supplying all the biggest, you know, tech companies in the Bay and in the Pacific Northwest, supplying my granola to all the employees there. So let's see. So this was, you said you started around 2013? Yes. Somewhere around there. Okay. So what were you doing in tech before that? Yeah. So, um, I, okay. So my first role in college, I was an intern, um, and I was a product intern. So this was back when Yahoo was trying to compete with MySpace and Facebook and I was on the Yahoo profiles team. Um, so I dabbled a little bit in product management, maybe like a year and a half, you know, I felt like, well, I'm not technical, like marketing seems like something that might be interesting. And then I ended up working for another company, um, for four years doing marketing that company ended up getting acquired by Intuit, the makers of QuickBooks and TurboTax. Um, and that's, that was the stage, that was the phase um, when I started to kind of like incubate my, my itch to do something. Um, and it was at the company, um, when, it was, when I was at Intuit, that's when I decided to start launch, you know, do my own side project of creating a business out of my granola. And then I actually hung on to my full-time job for the first four years of Great Granola's, I guess, lifespan. Um, and I, I did one other job where I just wore many hats. It was a series A startup. I did everything from marketing to managing a sales team to operations. Um, and I moonlit great Nola on the side the entire time. And it got to a point where, you know, slowly you're starting to just feel like every single part of me wanted to do the business only. And that's when I decided to finally take the leap. But it took, um, it took about four years for me to to finally get to the point where I felt comfortable and confident enough to do my business full time. And I am now coming up on one year of full time entrepreneurship. Hmm. Congratulations for that, actually. That uh so then for the first so you've been doing this for five years, but for the first four you were working on side, side business. So like you, figuring, it was figuring it out and build it was literally just like getting overcoming fear, you know, for the first, you know, in the beginning, you're just trying to figure it out and it's really cute and it's like on the side and it's like, well, okay, cool. She's doing farmer's market and like, cool, but she's got Google, which is awesome. Um, but it really wasn't until I would say like the last year and a half until I finally took the lead that I was really starting to build momentum and see how certain activities I was doing, whether it was business development, whether it was building up my social media presence, yielded outputs in, in sales and revenue. Um, and then I started to realize, look, like my, my limitation right now is bandwidth and, and giving it my full mind share. You know, what could I do if I suddenly dedicated all of my efforts into the business instead of having to commute three hours into San Francisco for work, you know, and do a job that honestly didn't drive me. Um, no, you know, that's not speaking anything negatively to the, to the, those companies that I work for. They've been awesome. It was more so just the passion and the drive that was just in so hard, like so strong within me for the business. Well, there's something to be said too for starting off with that full-time job because it gives you this like opportunity to try things that you otherwise wouldn't do, right? Where if you had to, you know, make money and pay rent and, you know, eat on day one, you have to do certain things that you have to make money. There's no, there's no choices. But when you don't have that like looming over you, you can say, let's, let's take all the profits, you know, you're selling to Google, let's take everything, just reinvest it and try some weird marketing campaign. Oh, it failed. Okay. Yeah. Let's, let's do it. Let's try again next month. Let's just try something else. And we'll just keep doing that. And it gives you opportunities to find things that work. Right. Oh yeah. I mean, I think, um, 
two things, obviously. The first is, you know, you get the cushion of, you know, salary and benefits. So even if you lose, you know, of course I went into the the business knowing that, Hey, I might lose a couple thousand dollars. I really tried to approach it very leanly. Like I was never like, okay, cool. Like, let me take my whole salary and invest in starting up this business. I approached it with the mindset of, Hey, okay, if I'm going to launch at the farmer's market, like my first step is just purely to validate the product. Like I want to know that other people are going to like want crave and repeatedly buy my product. And it's not just, okay, great. This is good, but I would never buy it. So I wanted to test that as quickly as possible. And I figured the farmer's market was the the easiest way to access that immediate feedback. Um, and I went in like prepared to lose maybe up to a thousand, two thousand $2,000 just based off like buying your LLC, you know, setting up a basic website, you know, booth stuff, you know, filing for my trademark. Um, and then the Google thing kind of happened by accident. I didn't ever look at um, supplying, you know, the B2B channel or this tech market as a way, like as a, as my strategic go to market, it just happened from me putting, you know, the fact that I launched my business out there on Facebook into my network. And then my friend who worked at Google just happened to see it and she reached out. Um, but I think having the job that, and that just, just gives you the runway to try these things. And, and, um, you know, you're not so, you're not so pressed to having to figure things out so quickly. Um, and you have time to kind of test some things. Um, and for me, I think it really helped me stay patient because even though I got Google pretty fast, it took me a while to actually get momentum in that channel. How long did that take to get Google? Um, okay. So I launched the business, meaning I sold at my first farmer's market in June of 2013. And at the time I was literally baking out of my home kitchen. I was a cottage food operator. Um, I got the opportunity to basically share my product with Googlers at a fair that they had. So they used to do these snack fairs. A lot of these big tech companies do it where they invite vendors to sample their products and the employees come, they taste and they vote for what they actually want. Um, so I got invited to do the, the Google fair in September. So within three months, you know, I had to produce enough product, you know, by hand, it was literally me and my mom at the time. And, um, we went to the fair and, um, that was three months in. And then after the fair, I think, in two months, I found out that I actually got voted in. So I like won the granola category and they placed their first PO for 1500 pounds in November. And they wanted me to obviously start supplying in, in January, but I couldn't, you know, it took me until March to actually figure out like how to produce that much and, you know, how I was going to price and package and pelletize things. Like literally I went from, you know, hand packaging, you know, hand labeling stickers on a clear bag, you know, for something that you might see in like a Whole Foods or like a really small specialty grocery store to Google's like, you know, we want 1500 pounds. Oh, what material are the bags? What's your pallet specs? I had no, no clue, you know, let alone know how to produce that much with a full-time job. Well, cause then you need to spend the next, how many, six months trying to figure out, it's not even, those next six months aren't, how do I get more sales? It's how do I even just fulfill this one sale? Like, how do I... Oh yeah. It was just, how do you scale from homemade granola for the weekend market for consumers to this big whale corporate account? Um, it, it took me a lot of networking. Um, obviously I didn't hand bake the 1500 pounds. <laughs> did you go to a co-packer or how did you actually? <laughs> yep, exactly. Yep. I went to a co-packer and before this business, you know, I have no, I have no background in food. I didn't even know what a co-packer was. So actually for, I guess for people listening, what is a co-packer? 
So co-packer is basically a company that manufactures, you know, they might manufacture their own products, but they manufacture other products for a client. And um, many of them might have their own food lines, or maybe they have a business, like a catering business. And this is a way to obviously uh, maximize their overhead and operational costs since they already have, you know, the staff, the equipment and the facility to kind of produce for others. Um, but they basically manufacture for another brand. So you yeah. got the order and then did you know right away, oh, I need to find a co-packer? Or was that even something like, did you not know what that was or how did that happen, that whole process? I think at that, I feel like I knew right away I wasn't going to be able to fulfill it on my own. The, the kitchen wasn't big enough. You, yeah, knew, you knew, I, knew that. <laughs> immediately. Like yep. even if I, like even, of course I knew I wasn't going to do it, but even like, I just knew there's no way I was going to have operational efficiency to even hire people to do it while renting a commercial kitchen. Like, it's just not my, my trade or my background. Yep. Um, and so, you know, there's, this is not a, a problem that you could just solve with Google. And so my immediate instinct is to just start asking as many people in the space that I know and get to get connected to another person through the next person, through the next person. So as soon as I knew, like, there's no way I'm going to be able to do this on my own. And I also know I'm not ready quit my job, you know, but probably by like the first or second conversation, I knew that I needed a co-packer. And then it was about finding, it was about finding one. It wasn't even about finding the right one because it's not like there's 10 co-packers out there that are perfect. And I just need to pick the best one. It was literally like, who will even take me on 1500 pounds might sound like a lot, but that's really small. And it's a huge risk for another company to, you know, onboard me knowing that I'm just starting my business. They don't know if I'm going to grow. This could be a fluke. And they also have the capacity and the equipment to do my product, which is very specific, right? So yeah, not every co-packer can do every product, right? Some specialize yeah. in frozen foods, others what, mm -hmm. d completely different things. So, you know, the, the folks at co-pack ice cream can't do granola. It doesn't work like that. Yeah. So that was, that was a challenge, but I think, um, I think it's, uh, the main thing is, you know, go out there, test your product get the demand first. When you get that big order, you will figure it out when the opportunity is there. I hear a lot of people, you know, you know, they, they, they think about, Hey, I need to find a co-packer before I can even go to market. Right. But it's like, no, trust me. When you get that order for like a thousand bars or whatever you're making, you'll figure it out. You'll figure it out a way to produce it, but first go generate that demand. Yeah. Um, I like that. Step two before step one. That's one of those things that's very, uh, I mean, coming from tech, very lean startup ish where, you go and you start getting the demand, you test the product and find out, does anyone even want this? Like, is this actually good? Does the world even, is this something the world wants? And then you figure out how to, okay, they want it. How do I actually get this to them? Not the other way around. Yeah, you fake it until you make it. And <laughs> if you make it, you will, you will get it done. Do, speaking of, did Google know at the time that you were in your kitchen or was this? Yeah, I think they love that. So like okay. Google, you know, Google and, you know, all these tech companies in, the Bay or just tech companies in general, as they're thinking about what employees want, what consumers want these days, they, they want local, they want healthy, you know, they, they love, you know, artisanal products, you know, they're not trying to go bring Coca-Cola into their, you know, MK or MK's micro kitchens. Um, and so when I sent Google their first sample of my product, it literally had my label, which said cottage food operator made in a home kitchen. Like that's literally how I was producing it and selling it for the farmer's market. Um, so I think they really loved it. And that, so that's what probably helped one of those things too, of, you know, this isn't general mills and it's on the shelf with like a, you know, captain crunch on the side. This is like something you can tell, oh, someone built this in the kitchen.
Yep. Yep. So people, I mean, that's what consumers want these days, right? Which is, you know, they're, they're brands with a story. They're, they're authentic. They're, you know, conscious brands that care about what goes inside. So, so then how did you go from, so now March, you finally got that first order out to Google. You said, great. Okay. It's on the, on the back of the truck going. How did you go from there to saying, let's, let's keep this going. Let's keep this ball going. Let's not have this be the one account. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so looking back, I honestly hit a bit of a couple dead ends in the beginning. So when I got Google, it was like a huge break. It was my first breakthrough, but by no means did I have an actual working business model because can you go and replicate and get another Google and another Google and another Google? It, the first year and a half, it was really hard. So, you know, of course I had this huge win and I can go to other distributors and other companies and say, Hey, I've got Google. But a lot of people in the beginning said no to me because again, I'm still an unknown brand. I don't have distribution. Um, you know, they're probably quite happy with what they already had. Well, and so and some of them only buy through their own established channels, right? Like, yes, they're going to only buy through other distributors. So Google was, was big enough of an account where you know, they would order and I would supply them directly. But all these other companies like Twitter, Dropbox, Slack, all of them use distributors or company, basically like snack vendors who will stock their kitchens. And so even if they love the product and they're like, yeah, we want great NOLA, if they can't get it from their one supplier, they're not going to like order one off and be like, okay, cool. We'll just manage your orders and POs and invoices separate from like the one account we streamline everything else through. Yeah. So in the beginning, it was really hard um, to get distribution number one and then also be able to get those other accounts and so did you think you were going to sell directly into the companies or did you know initially like oh there's a distributed network and i like have to play that game i think i had to learn that i didn't know so again i never had a plan i just knew i had a great product and what you know i wanted to bring it to market and before i got google i just envisioned myself as like okay i could see myself on, on the shelves of whole foods right but then the google thing happened by accident I was able to win that account. And then afterwards, of course, it's like, well, it makes sense if I already have this formatted and it works for companies, who else can I go after within that like corporate wholesale channel? And so I quickly learned that you do have to go through a distributor network. Um, most of the bigger companies are not going to bring me in no matter how much they love me, unless I am supplied through the distributors that they purchase all of their, you know, food and beverages from. Um, and so I had to really go through the back door. So I leveraged a lot of my, you know, tech network, having worked in the industry, you know, for now, for 10 years, looking back, you know, five years when I started the business. Um, and I got connected to, you know, office managers or facility managers, the people who decide which products they want. And so my strategy was really to like, you know, if they love the product enough. Um, they will go ask their distributor and say, hey, we want to bring Great Nola in. Oh, you guys don't have it? Well, we want it, right? So as soon as you can get an anchor account, so for example, um, the way I got Dropbox, I you know, had a connection to Dropbox. He loved my product so much that he went to the people that stocked you know, Dropbox with all their food and beverages and was like, hey, we want to bring in Great Nola. So then that, okay. distributor, that distributor was basically forced to bring me in. But then what's amazing is that once you get anchored into a distributor, then you can open up all the accounts that they also supply. Okay. Did you try going to the distributors first, the other way around? And they oh, said, exactly. So yeah, yeah. In the beginning, <laughs> you go to the distributors first and they're like distributors. They're not salespeople, right? They're literally just someone, you know, you go through them, right? So distributors, they're going to be like, 
well, you need to bring some business. You need an anchor account. We're not going to just go sell, sell you into these companies. Right. And so I really had to kind of go through the back door and get, you know, these companies to basically raise their hand and say, Hey, distributor, you, we want this product. So we're kind of forcing you to bring it in. Yeah. So that, and that's the thing with distributors. It's not their job to create the demand. It's your job to create the demand and they fulfill mm -hmm. it. So oh, it's this weird thing where you're kind of handing off the fulfillment piece to them, but it's still your job to create the demand, but it's not going to be direct to you anymore. It's going to be, you create the demand for them to buy to someone else. Correct. Yeah. yeah. It's a very odd relationship. It's, it's tough. That's, it's a really hard nut to crack. Um, but I, I gotta say like product is the most important thing. So again, you know, my, I always went on taste, like Dropbox didn't bring me in just to support me. Cause I'm like this local <laughs> female entrepreneur, you know, trying to, Try to trying to do something, they really love the product, right? Um, but I think it's equally important to nurture those relationships. So even though Dropbox, you know, got me to um, get their distributor to bring me in, I then made it a priority to build a, that relationship with that distributor because I need them to, you know, understand who I am, my story, what I'm trying to do, my vision and my passion, and then hopefully they will go and they'll think of me when they're, you know, stocking someone else's accounts with granola. So then at that point, you, Dropbox goes to the distributor and says, we want this. Then you get connected with the distributor because they're basically forced to at that point. And then once you're in, now you're saying, hey, you know, why don't you try this? What else, you know, what else can yeah. we do together? Yeah, send you samples. What, you know, you know, I don't know if you're allowed to share a customer list with me, but I have a lot of connections in tech and I'm happy to go work and like be feet in the street for you and like help send samples and, and get people on board. Because of course, like distributors, they make money off of brands like me, right? Like if, if I'm a higher, I'm, you know, higher quality, slightly more expensive granola, I mean, against like the kinds and the general mills, of course, but at the same time, the distributors take kind of like a percentage markup. So if I'm a higher value, you know, product, they're hopefully going to make more money off of me than the general mills anyway. Right. So I try to position it as a win-win, but again, it's, you really got to get them behind you and the brand. Now, how does that work with distributors with food? Are they purchasing? Do how, are they purchasing ahead of time for each week? Because obviously, it's not something they can just, you know, buy six months worth and throw it on a shelf. So, like, how do yeah. they actually purchase from you? Yeah. Oh God, inventory management—it just goes over my head. But um, usually, they'll place like monthly POs. Um, in the beginning, they have to do a little bit of forecasting. They're not going to know, you know, for example. They might bring me in a Dropbox. They're probably going to order a little bit more in the beginning to understand the consumption pattern. Um, but, you know, I would say usually they order every month or so after they figure out what the usage is. Um, the nice thing about granola, it has great shelf life. Um, so it's not like something they have to move um, urgently. But, of course, with any, you know, warehousing and inventory management, they want to be efficient with their space. So they're ordering about every month. Okay. So they can put a month POs in and it takes some problem guessing a couple months and they start understanding the sell through and okay. Yep. So then what, so then how did you get kind of the next few business accounts? So then you got a distributor, you went to the network of other companies they're selling into and you started just saying, Hey, all you have to do is talk to your distributor. They can get this, you know, next week for you. Yep. So once you kind of get those key distributors, it gets easier and easier. But I would say the biggest challenge was just getting that distributor, like the distributor in the first place. But again, once you get them, then you have access to all these other accounts that now you can go to. And those office managers don't have, you know, it's just simple. All they have to do is um, like check a box, basically check a box that week. And it just magically shows up. 
Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, and there's probably I'm guessing only a handful of distributors in that market. Yeah. So in the Bay Area, I would say there's maybe like five five major players. Um, and actually now all of those distributors are streamlined through a really big distributor. So between me and um, let's just say Dropbox, right? There's actually two layers. So I have, I supply one distributor, that distributor supplies the other distributor, that distributor <laughs> supplies the company, but I literally work my way backwards. Okay. So you have a distributor supplying the distributors that then sells to the companies. Correct. And then okay. it gets in the mouths of the people who are, you know, obviously the employees. Um, and just an important thing to note there is be mindful of this if you're thinking about a business like this, because you need to make sure you don't undermine your pricing. Because in the beginning, when you build the business, you may have a couple direct accounts in the beginning, the people who are willing to take you on and manage you directly, usually they're the smaller companies. Um, but know that one day you hope you can streamline everything through a distributor. So make sure you have that distributor markup in your pricing. Yeah, how do you, so when you say the distributor markup, how do you figure that out initially? So you know your, you know, here's your cost, here's a retail cost. How do you get those, in, like, where do you go in between and find those yeah. price breaks? Well, I feel like I didn't, I, I didn't have this foresight. And fortunately, I just didn't, I was, I didn't screw myself with my pricing initially. But I think, um, so for me to, so as a food manufacturer, you always want to strive for like 40%, you know, gross margin in the B2B wholesale channel, you can go a little bit lower because you're not spending a ton of money doing marketing. You know, when you're going to grocery stores, you need to really strive for more like 50% because you're the one who has to pass promos and discounts and charge, you know, like free cases or whatnot to, um, for grocery stores, but good thing wholesale, you kind of just sell them the product and the margin is yours. So ideally you should strive for a 40% margin. Um, you want to put that in there first and then the, the first distributor layer that I supply, they will then maybe mark their product up 10%. It's not too high, but maybe 10% to the other distributors and those other distributors. It's always the distributor between like the end consumer that does the big markup. They might do like 30%, right? So you kind of want to work backwards from there, but then you have to price yourself competitively too. So hopefully all of that works going in and coming back down yeah. with the market. That seems, it seems like there's like a science to this. It's a little tough it's to. It's very tricky. Yeah. It, it's really hard when you're starting up too, because you're not going to, your costs are not going to, your cost of goods are not going to be super low. Um, so you want to price yourself where you have enough runway, but at the same time, you know, you can't price yourself completely out of the market. Well, and I'm assuming initially with the co-packer, when you're placing that first order, your cost of goods are relatively high. So then you're putting a higher than it should be you're, you the price you're giving to the distributors is higher than it really should be but then as you're able to get into the distributors you can give them a better price but you have to get more volume you have to get more yeah. Vol yeah so this is kind of chicken and egg thing that it's that's the, that's definitely a challenge yeah any tricks to figuring that out or just kind of um, biggest advice would be don't price yourself assuming that your margin is going to get lower you're going to screw yourself right so you know, you might not have 40% right away, but like at least strive for 20, 25, right? Um, and, you know, you might have to do it just to get the business and make it work, but don't price yourself thinking that your margin is going to come for sure. Because if you don't have a margin, you're not going to have the, you know, you're not going to have the capital to grow and you're going to find yourself 
cash strapped, which you will already in this kind of business since you have to front money towards inventory. Um, so don't be afraid to overprice yourself a little bit, knowing that, you know, your quality is there. And even if you are able to achieve the mark, like, let's just say tomorrow, my cost of goods just dropped a ton. I'm not going to go slash my pricing. I'm going to keep it where it is since people are already buying and it's okay. But just don't, you know, I think a lot of businesses will just price themselves assuming, okay, well, I'm going to get here. And then that ends up like putting them out of business. Yeah. So don't go in there saying, you know, my cost of goods is X today, but you know, we're going to, we're going to triple our volume and it'll be half that. So let's, let's set our margins at half that now and race there as quick as we can. Assume they're going to stay up there for a while, for longer than you would expect. Yeah. Okay. And, uh, you know, and I think it's one of those things where if it's just way too expensive in the beginning and you're just way double, you, your price double than your competitors and no one's buying, you have to look at your business model. You know, you got to see if this is really a viable business then. Got it. So then as far as actually purchasing inventory, how does that work with this model? Cause you're, you have to pay the co-packers. I'm, I'm assuming at the beginning, you don't have very good terms, right? So you're paying them pretty, uh, pretty much upfront. And then you have to wait for the actual payment to come back from a distributor, which is yeah. going to take a while. Yeah. Um, okay. So with co-packers, the great thing is that, um, you know, I just pay for basically ship ready product, right? So I'm not dealing with sourcing raw ingredients. I'm not dealing with inventory management. I'm not dealing with, you know, if they over bake a batch and it's not to spec, that's, I don't have to worry about that at the same time. Um, you know that they have their margin in it. So like there's automatically probably like 10% margin that, that I have to absorb. Um, but I think with the co-packer, it's just, you know, I think you want to make sure that you start off on the right foot and you have a co-packer who's not going to, you know, rob you. Right. Because, you know, it's in their best interest for you to grow with them. Right. They don't, you know, if you're a small business, I hopefully you're working with someone who wants to see you grow because that would be a win-win. And fortunately the co-packer that I'm working with now has, you know, while co-packers are usually not super transparent about, okay, this is exactly how much I'm getting every single ingredient. Therefore I'm adding 10% and this is what it is. Like usually they kind of keep that to themselves. Like my co-packer now has been really awesome where she's like, look, we just usually have X margin. If we have some things that change in the market that make things super efficient, we will pass those savings on to you and just keep our kind of like flatline margin because we want to see you grow. Right. At the same time, if, you know, ingredients double or labor doubles, we're going to also have to you know go up as well. So that's a little bit scary because, you know, like things could change and it's really beyond your control and your co-packer could literally just say, Hey, in, in 30 days, we got to raise pricing 10%. And in a food business, when you're only making 30 to 40%, when you start, that's a lot. Um, but it does save a lot of headaches because I can't even imagine how inefficient it would be for me to do this all myself. You know, I wouldn't be able to have any bandwidth to focus on sales and marketing. I'd be just focused on production. Yeah. And that's one of those things too. And foods is very different than a lot of hard goods, right? Where you literally don't know the price week to week. Um, I've talked to people with like restaurants where, you know, they're like, oh, the cost of bread has gone up, you know, 6% this week. And like, and you don't think about these things of realizing, oh, bread goes up 6% in a week. And if you're buying, you know, $10 worth, you don't care. But if you're buying, you know, thousands of dollars a day or a week, then it starts to move the needle. Right. So then you're, are you, are you at this point still using at, well, at that point, were you using your 
full-time job to basically fund the paying for the product from the co-packer, sending it to the distributor, and then waiting. I'm assuming then the distributor is paying you when you actually get it there or when they sell it. Yeah. So, okay. So when I started and again, my first customer outside of the farmer's market was Google. They were my only customer for like the first year of business. Now I want to say I'm really, I look back and I feel very lucky because again, my co-packer that I was working with at the time, I would just send them orders when I got the order. So that was a luxury, right? Where it's not like I'm preparing all this inventory with the hopes that I'm getting a purchase order. Fortunately, Google was willing to work with me and give me like a whole month lead time for fulfilling an order, which is not normal. You know, most of the time people want their product within two weeks, let's say reasonably. Um, but I basically, I would wait until I had an order. And then only when I had a purchase order from Google, would I then send a purchase order to my co-packer. Okay. Because a lot of times too, the co-packer wants a minimum guarantee that yeah. Yeah. yeah so i mean i feel very fortunate where that first co-packer was you know the 1500 pound orders were enough to to justify them to like start and stop but again you know they're going to be most efficient when they can just run 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 um but that's how it was for the first year and a half um i had a good lead time or i had a really big buffer on my lead time from google they were willing to work with me on that and then i would only place orders when i had an order and then Google was also really awesome because for small businesses like mine, they do net 15 payment terms, which is like unreal. Oh, yeah, right? that is. <laughs> yeah, I hear in grocery, right? It could be like net 60. Yeah. I can't even imagine. Plus you're fronting all this marketing um, you know, capital to them too. Um, so I was lucky there. And then I was able to kind of, again, over the first year and a half, two years, you know, I went, got through my lull, started getting more and more accounts and I got more volume. And then I could see, okay, look, as a business, I'm, I have steady consumption where now the co-packer I work with, she's able to kind of say, hey, we'll always have like X amount of pallets on standby and I can deploy them within a week or two whenever a customer orders. So I kind of have that volume going now. And that probably, so that probably helps with, you know, you can actually, they can plan, you can plan. Um, and then are you still... Were you able to fund it all just out of your full-time business? Or did you have to go out oh, and actually? Question, yes. Yeah. So in the beginning, um, gosh, I want to say I wasn't that, I'm so bad. I'm not that focused on like the, you know, the finances. Like I just literally was like, let me just grow this business and make sure that I have a great product and I can somewhat scale it. Um, but I, I probably invested maybe like 20 or 30,000 in the first like year or two. But then eventually I was able to break even um, because, again, all the profit that I make from this channel supplying tech companies goes into my pocket. You know, that doesn't I, I'm not obligated to use that towards marketing to get more tech accounts. The tech accounts are purely just through like business development, me reaching out, sampling and getting the sale. I don't have to like, you know, once it's in a company, it, it moves. It's free for the employees. So I was able to break even from that. And now I've, I've been just bootstrapping it ever since. So but that, so this, I'm gonna have to, oh, I think well, I'm gonna have to, no, just down the road, like ultimately I'm not trying to build a business that's purely this, uh, you know, bulk granola and these companies, like these tech employees, the market, it's definitely my demographic, which is awesome. But unfortunately they're not seeing my bright purple packaging. It's usually in a bulk dis dispenser. You know, maybe I'm lucky if my logo is on it, right? Like my brand name is on it. It says great granola with a but I'm lucky if they even have my logo or like my website. So it's not building a brand. And ultimately I'm trying to build a brand. Um, and so that's why um, I'm really trying to focus a lot on 
you know, my social online presence and, and grow my direct to consumer channel through Amazon and my website, because that is my strategy for building the brand. Um, and I look at the B2B channel as more, this is great volume. This is a great way to seed the market, but how do I ultimately get people to like, just fall in love and, you know, join my community online and really, you know, become lovers of great Nola the brand. Okay. So then it sounds like it's some, at some place in the past couple of years, you've switched from solely B2B to more a blend, right? B2B and direct to consumer. Yeah. Okay. So I would say right now my revenue is probably 80, 20 B2B to online. And again, I have no grocery store presence and I'm deliberately trying to, to, to not do that as long as I can grow the brand online. So I would say revenue is about 80, 20 B2B to online but effort, resources, and money is probably the inverse with the hypothesis and the hopes that this online channel is the, is really going to build the brand. And that's like truly this truly scalable channel. Um, you know, food service, B2B channel, that is a great kind of foundation and it's my bread and butter today. But again, it's not like I can scale that part of my business to be like the $20 million business that will make me an investable and, super attractive business to, you know, other companies. Right. But the B2B or the direct to consumer side can, and, you know, traditionally food brands have gone to retail first to do that, but you're seeing more and more the market, especially with Gen Z and millennials, they're buying everything online. Um, and so obviously it's a much better, I'd say you get a better margin. Um, you get paid quicker than going the traditional tr grocery route. So that's why I'm focused so much on my online strategy. So now, have you been able to leverage your, your B2B to, you know, well, first, it's nice that you have that income coming in every month. So you're able to now say full time, I can focus on this. And even if I want to spend, you know, you spend 80% of your time on the B2C, you at least have the 80% revenue funding it, right? So it gives you that little, um, like a like a lab, basically. you basically raised your own funding through that like sweat equity. Yep. Okay. So then from there, have you been able to use the B2B to like grow the B2C or is that almost its own thing that's happening now? Um, I, okay. So when I look at my B2C channel, so like my Amazon customers and obviously the data in Amazon on your customers is not that easy to navigate. Um, but then my Shopify data, um, because I'm bootstrapped and I'm not doing a ton of things in marketing, um, but because I'm not on store shelves, it's pretty easy to say, Hey, if I see an order going to the Bay area, you know, Palo Alto, San Jose, um, San Francisco, I can almost like assume that that's coming from my BBD channel. Right. If I'm seeing orders going all over the country to Florida, Texas, that's likely coming from my Instagram efforts. So, um, I, they feed into both, right? Like I, I think there's a lot of customers or there's a lot of employees in these tech companies that are buying my product. They love my product enough. They figure out the name and they go online and they find me and they buy and they pay for shipping, even though they get my product for free in their offices. Um, I saw that from the very beginning of when I started this business, you know, I have diehards that like will literally go find me pay for shipping because I pass my shipping price to my customers online right now. Um, and they'll buy me, but then I'm also doing a lot of influencer marketing on, on social media, um, I've dabbled a little bit in PR. And so when I do see those orders, um, you know, come in and go across the country, 
it's usually from the online efforts. Um, I don't know that mix yet. I got to get deeper into the data, but I, the B2B definitely feeds the online side. Okay. So you're not sure exactly how much yet, but you know, it's definitely, it's helping and you can probably see, I'm assuming a disproportionately high amount of your consumer sales go to that Bay area. Um, it's hard to say. I mean, a, a lot of it is through Instagram. Um, and again, influencers have been a really big part of my strategy because, um, you know, once you start building up like this cohort of people who have a similar following, you know, everyone wants to do what whoever they look up to do and put in their body. Um, but I see them go all over the place. Um, yeah. I mean, I'm actually, I need to look into this and see if I can just like filter based off zip code and, and state and just see like what that, de what the density looks like in the different regions. But the other thing too, is anytime I hear from a customer, um, you know, I have an abandoned cart email, right. For my website. I always, I, every customer I can like talk to, I always ask, Hey, how'd you find out about great Nola? So whether someone DMs me on Instagram, DMs the brand, or if they reach, you know, they reply back to my abandoned cart, I always ask where they heard of me. And I, usually actually i would say most of them heard me on about me on instagram okay yeah that's that's interesting the influencer thing because right there instagram granola is not a very um visual product but mm -hmm. with the influencers they can kind of oh yeah yeah you, surprise yeah check you gotta check out my instagram and look at all the like um tag posts of me you will see some amazing creations that they make okay we'll definitely uh link down the show notes so I'm looking at, we're getting close on time. I feel like I could ask you more questions all day. This is, uh, <laughs> this whole story is very interesting going that whole, uh, the journey. So definitely want to keep, uh, keep an eye on the time though. So if people want to kind of learn more about you, kind of see what you're working on at Instagram, where else can they find you? Yeah. So, I mean, I think Instagram is, you know, you'll get your little daily dose of greatness. It'll be very visually sexy stuff that you'll see in the form of granola. <laughs> um, <laughs> But I, um, you know, if you want to go on the site and subscribe to my newsletter, um, a lot of updates are going out there usually every week. And then I also have a blog on my site. So if you go to greatnola.com and you go to the blog, I have lots of information there, whether it's just general tips on healthy, you know, health and wellness, but also I share a lot about my journey as a founder through some founder um, blog posts that I do. Okay. Very cool. We'll definitely add links uh, to that in the show notes. Awesome. Well, I think this is super helpful. So thank you very much for coming on today. And um, hopefully some people will check that out and try some granola. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me.